Hello and welcome to the Emotional World Podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition. One of the things that um, I did at the start of 2018 was uh, promise that we would introduce a new aspect to the podcast. So we'd introduce uh, an aspect around emotional work in stories. So I started that off by telling you my story from 2017, or the story of my 2017. Um, and uh, our guest today is here to talk about uh, emotion at work in imposter syndrome. So in a way, our guest sort of reluctantly volunteered to be um, our guest. So anyway, let, let's get them on the air to start with. So welcome to the podcast, the wonderful Amanda Arismith. Good morning. Hello. How are you? Good. I'm good. Thank you. I'm good. What about you? How are you doing? I'm really well. Yeah, it's beautiful and sunny. It's cold, but beautiful and sunny. So I'm, I'm in a good I'm in a good place. It is crisp today, actually. Um, have you got a fire in your house? Because you're in the countryside, don't you? We do. We have a, a fabulous log burner that... Um, we didn't put on last night, despite the fact it was quite cold. I was under a blanket, but um, we also uh, are, we have, where we live in the village, we have a biomass heater for the whole village. Oh, do you? Yeah. So um, the guy who runs our village, um, a couple of years ago when he took over, put biomass heating in for the whole village. So, wow. um, yeah. So uh, I have put the heating on both upstairs and downstairs today, um, much to the dog's delight. <laughs> I haven't lit the fire yet today. Um it's something I will do because it's, it's, it's similarly crisp and cold um, where I am. But um, yeah, I haven't lit it yet today. I was wondering if, if you'd lit yours. But as a fair-haired, freckled ginger woman, I love this weather because you get the benefit of the sun and the vitamin D and all that great stuff, but you don't actually have to get hot and sweaty. It's, yes, uh, that's this true. This is perfect for me. <laughs> perfect weather for you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so as well as being our guest then, um, Amanda's a HR practitioner and we'll, and we'll hear more about your experiences personally and professionally, if that's all right, as we work our way through the podcast. Um, so before we get into kind of talking about our topic at hand today, um, one of the things that I do on all the podcast episodes is I ask a sort of unexpected slash random question that takes us off into um, into other topics that go from there. So is it all right if I open with that question? Yes, of course. Wonderful. So um, I, I had a different one planned and then our opening discussion has made me change it. So is there a, um, or in your experience, is there a ideal way to light the log burner? Yes, I believe there is. So, okay, tell me what that um, is then. I think uh, you need to clear your grate a bit. So I, you know, I okay. don't believe you have to have it clear completely every time. You can have a couple of ashes in there, but you need to clear your grate because oxygen and moving air through is important. Don't okay. over tighten your paper. I think it, you know you need to screw your paper up, but don't put it too tight because you put it too tight, you end up putting too much paper in. But also, don't okay. overfill your paper. You have to find that great balance between paper, kindling, and logs. Um, I don't use fire lighters. Uh, we ah, have a very okay. good drawer on our fire, so I don't have to use fire lighters. But if we do use fire lighters, we use the natural ones because I can't stand yeah. the smell of those um, paraffin, paraffin ones. ones. Yeah. And you can't get it off your hands. It doesn't matter what you do. Uh, <laughs> and also, don't do don't you know? Remember to have your grate open. Don't do that thing where you close it and you, you, your vents are still closed, so your fire doesn't get going. But the other thing is small logs to start off with. It's always tempting to put a massive big log on to get it to get your fire going. But actually, if you want to get heat going, the smaller the logs, the more heat you're going to get. The larger the logs, they'll burn longer and they'll burn stronger and you'll get a nice constant heat. But you won't get that really, really hot heat. Um, I am a uh, log burner nerd, as you could now tell. You yes. are a log burner yes. nerd. That's good. Well, there's the type so of logs so as well, Phil, you know. 
let's not forget oh okay so you've got your hardwood your softwood are you gonna have a mix different wood burns are different you want kiln dried i was gonna say do you do kiln dried we don't do kiln dried we we do um we let us we get us from a, a provider that just kind of leaves them out in the uh, sort of dry but just leaves them out in the open rather than kiln dried we have a mix so uh, okay. we we got ours uh from they deliver by the cubic meter here they don't deliver by the bag or, or by weight because obviously depending on how much moisture is in your logs your logs are going to weigh more so uh ah, yeah so okay. it's uh the drier your logs you want to deliver by cubic feet um sorry drier you probably want weight but cubic feet is important because then you get the number of logs rather than the weight but you want a little bit of dryness because otherwise they're going to get harder to burn yeah, we get logs delivered by the ton, so oh, right. um, so we'll get a ton of logs delivered, and then we've got a massive log store that we'll put it in. Um, so as well as being kind of dried by the the person that provides the logs, we'll then put them in the log store and leave them outside. So a, a ton of logs will probably last us a year, I would say. Um, yeah, so I say a, a ton of logs will last us a year, um, which is good. But we have an open fire, so rather than a um, rather than a wood burner, we've got a a fully open fire which I, I know is less efficient but i love it i, I love the um the the ambiance of it as well as the heat that it provides but also we've got our chimney in the middle of our house so if we um uh, if we light the fire and then we have it on all day then uh, it burns you know it burns really well all day and it also um as well as burning really well all day it will also um, heat the whole house because the chimney's right in the middle. Uh, and yeah, so we're lucky like that. Our wood burner's below our bedroom, and ah, so okay. when it uh, when it gets uh, it, at night when we go up, it's nice and toasty in our room. But if you happen to be at the other end of the house, because we're in a long kind of old barn shape, if you happen to be at the other end of the house, it's freezing. It's but, freezing because yeah. you don't get the you don't get the joys of it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So we, I think we've established that both of us are in uh, are in the sticks. So yes. one of the one of the challenges with being in villages is that the internet connection can't be all that great sometimes. So um, one of the things that we often do on the podcast is try and get the kind of podcast recorded in one hit without any uh, without any editing. So we have a sort of a genuine exploration of the conversation. Um, but if that mean if we lose our audio or anything like that, then we'll just um, we can always pause the recording or we can come back and uh, and edit stuff back together. Uh, if that's okay okay cool all right so um I, I guess i wanted to open with what went through your mind as you were putting your hand up to kind of say uh, i'd be interested in doing an emotion at working stories podcast uh so amusingly um i started with yeah yeah i i, I can do emotion at work podcast I'd, I'd be happy and then immediately i went to but there'll be better people than me there'll be other people with more information there'll be other people who've got qualifications there'll be people with better experience oh he won't want me there'll be other people that'll be fine but you know i i, I like a chat that'd be good mm. um so i had that internal kind of but i'm probably not good enough he'll probably have better people and and how how long has that been with you that kind of internal dialogue so i think um i've had that most of my life i um i'm a younger sister of a really successful, clever, um, talented big brother. Okay. And uh, he he got really good grades at school. He was he got the lead part in school plays. He could write music and play music. And I couldn't do any of those things. 
um, uh, he was firstborn. He is. Uh, he still is firstborn. I'm talking about. His, he's still around. <laughs> bless him. I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he was the apple of every everyone's eye. And I was me, who was a little bit awkward, a little bit clumsy. Um, I was Mr. Bump for many years at school. Mm. When my first school, mum jokes about how she used to uh, bump into people in the village we lived at the time and they'd say, oh, we've seen your Amanda down the doctors again because I'd have fallen over at school and bumped uh, my head okay. or broken my arm. Um, I, yeah, I wasn't uh, the, I, was, I wasn't a perfect child. I, I always had a tear in something and probably, as I say, bruises and bumps and those sorts of things. Mm. So, I, so I always, I could never live up to our kid. I could never live up to him. Um, he is one of my best friends. He's someone who I love um, beyond measure. And I know now that for many years he had the same feeling. And in his, he's older than me, but in his 20s, he would say things like, when I grew up, I want to be like Amanda. So, oh, wow. okay. yeah, so it, it, it's it's interesting the perception we have of ourselves, isn't it? And what we feel. I think the other thing for me was I I left school um, without qualifications at 19 after mm-hmm. um, after quite a bad illness when I was 15 and then uh, many years of struggling to be academic again, having been one of those people who actually found school quite easy and learning quite easy okay. um, to then miss a year through ill health and, and never get that cognitive ability back again uh was really tough so i went into work and all my friends went to university because that's what you did when you came, went to st bartholomew's in newbury that's that's what everyone did you went to university you didn't go to work and um, mm-hmm. and so there was that whole the whole thing of what's culturally accepted and so i always felt that i was um not enough and that i was slightly lesser just because of the way that my the path that my life took and that kind of stays with you through life doesn't it it stays with you professionally mm-hmm. um of all the jobs that i couldn't apply for because they required a degree um yeah. if i'd done a degree in fine art could i have applied for those jobs would it have made me any better at the job probably not but i couldn't apply and they weren't interested in seeing me yeah because you didn't you didn't have that that tick that you could put in the appropriate box exactly through yeah. to uh not being able to have children um, unfortunately I can't have children and it's okay. it's something that for many years I um, it felt like a failure mm-hmm. and it felt like but you know with hindsight and a little bit of reflection um, I can't I, it's not a failure unfortunately I'm physically not able to and that that's yeah. sad you know um, failed relationships friendships that you invest in you spend time in that disappear and you you spend and I don't think this is just me. I think a lot of people do this. And, and I envy to an extent people that don't have this issue. You're always going to be going, what did I do? How was I not enough? What was it about me? Mm. And, and that, that element of um, self-doubt and, and how we doubt ourselves and, the, and the, the toll that can take on the way that you live and your emotion and, and, and the way that you work. So... I guess um, I would say that probably from the age, I probably always had an element of self-doubt. Mm. I would say that I probably felt it more uh, from my mid-twenties when I started to try and achieve more at work, but couldn't because of my circumstance and my history. Okay. So... Um... Uh, and, and if at any point I ask questions that, that you don't want to answer or you, you're not comfortable going there, that you can just say that's then that's okay. Um, uh, so what 
Hmm. So what kind of what made it more? I can't remember the word you used now when you said. So you said it was more. I want to say the word pronounced, but that wasn't the word that you used in your mid twenties. What you mentioned it that you think it was around the time where you started to want to apply for more stuff. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I think it. it, it um... In human resources, particularly, and, and you mm. know, we said I'm an HR practitioner, and in the field of human resources, I, I was, I'm a generalist. Okay. Um, in the, this would have been the mid '90s, and I would say still now, um, a lot of organisations, if you wanted to apply for a job, required a degree. Yeah. Interestingly, actually, if you go and look at the number of people that did degrees in human resource management in the late '80s and early '90s, it's probably quite low. So it wasn't a degree in my chosen field or vocation, but they wanted yeah. a degree. Yeah. Um, and so at the time, the way that recruitment was working, and, and, and recruitment worked in this way with everything, um, CVs would be looked at and they would just be discounted. And, and if you didn't, as you said, tick that box, you'd get discounted. And it mm. was disheartening. And so I got to a point where I just didn't apply for things because I knew that actually I didn't have a I didn't have the experience to be able to show that actually I didn't need a degree because I have the experience to do the job but mm. I also didn't have that tick in a box to show that I could do the activity and this wasn't for this wasn't for jobs that required a particular skill this this was for personnel officer HR advisor junior HR manager HR business partner roles mm. it, it wasn't and so as as recruiters I think we got a bit lazy in that we tick must have degree but actually what we meant by that was must be from a certain background must fit a certain mold because yeah. actually by saying must have degree what we were saying was must be white middle class yeah, yeah. um and I, I appreciate that's a big leap <laughs> but well but if you you know so if you think about society at that particular time and you know if you look to the demographics of people that would be able to get to and sustain being at university um i, I don't think that's a um yeah, maybe it's a an over generalisation, but I think yes. it's a reasonably fair generalisation. Yeah. Um, yeah, to make. So, <clears throat> I'm I'm a little bit curious around. Was it that you were applying for jobs and you were getting knocked back, or was it that because of your kind of the the roles that you were doing, you could see that CVs were being discounted on the basis of it, and therefore you didn't? So I guess I'm yeah I'm wondering like was it that that you were doing stuff and getting rejected and that was compounding it or were you seeing the practice and then that was compounding it or was it something different um, it was a bit of both actually so i okay. i have recollection of conversations with recruiters where they'd say no client must have a degree on this okay. um, but also i was working so late 90s for three years i worked for a um a law firm in, in Leeds and I loved it I loved working there it's great it's where I did my um, IPD as it was at the time because that's, yeah, okay. that's how long ago it was um, and uh, we we would look at paralegals we'd look at secretaries we'd look at you know I think law firms and, and professional services are particularly hierarchical in terms of their education anyway yeah um, we I, I think about how we used to select trainee solicitors. Not only did they have to have a degree, but it had to be a degree from a Russell Group University, and it had to be a two-one. We, you know, at the time we oh. didn't really look at anyone else, and and so I think I was within a structure um, where the importance on qualifications was so high that it made me 
it probably highlighted my lack of qualification even more. Okay. And then, and then if, if I may, I'll, I want to then take a similar themed question, but then kind of go back to one of the things you said towards the start of the podcast about your brother. So it, I guess a similar question, was it that kind of you were trying to, to live up to that and being told that you weren't able to, or was it that you were telling yourself you weren't able to, you know, was there, or was there, again, was there something different? So, uh, you know, um, he has a first class degree. Um, okay. He has a master's. Um, it's in creative arts and, you know, it, but he has these things. And mm. um, I think it was more around the doors that were open to people that had a degree and had that, could tick that box them and and the what that actually meant and i think if i'm if i'm completely honest i was i was bitter i was bitter about the fact that the reason i didn't go to university was because i'd been ill it wasn't about the fact that okay i i didn't have the capability to go to university it was you know um if we take away the cognitive ability but you think about the mental uh so actually the 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 ability to learn and the ability to reason mm. and the ability to research if i could if i could have spent the time reading and spending the time doing that then i could have done all of that it was more about so i think i was i was a bit bitter and i was a bit uh angry about the fact that i didn't do that and i i felt i felt that i wasn't being given a chance to show my worth because of this perceived lack of something because I hadn't gone to university because at the same time I wasn't telling people that the reason I didn't go to university was because I'd been ill because okay. yeah. it, it wasn't um it wasn't it, it wasn't acceptable because if you if you admitted that you had sorry I've, I've, I'm skirting around illness I have um ME myalgic encephalomyelitis it's okay. a uh, oh I, I added extra syllables into that encephalitis <laughs> myalgic encephalitis um uh, at the time it was known as yuppie flu um, or chronic fatigue syndrome. So, you know, okay. if, if it comes with that horrible label, it's not seen as a real illness. Yeah, I was going to so say. you're not going to tell people you've got it, and you're not going to say, "And this is the reason I didn't go to university, and this is the reason I didn't complete my A levels." You're going to. I chose to talk about the um, the boom and bust crash at the time. Talk about the fact that my parents were on the income level where they earned too much to get a grant, but too little to put two kids through university at the same time. Talk okay. about the costs and the reasons why I, because I didn't know what my vocation was going to be. I didn't go to university because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew exactly what I wanted to do, um, but it was easier for me to talk about the reasons being external for not going than internal mm. but what it it you create stories don't you and you create yeah. um reasons for yourself for not doing things but there's the the self-doubt through not getting opportunity and and then the the narrative you start giving yourself like well i i couldn't do that because i don't have a degree i could never be this because i don't have this i could never do that because of this or because of that and you you close doors to yourself and you mm. close opportunity to yourself by doing that you've, 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 it's triggered me thinking about um, why because I never went to uni either so I, 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 I've pretty much flunked out of my animal so I didn't um, I didn't fail well did I fail them? no I didn't fail them because I got three E's so 
you know, I'd, I'd just about pass them. Um, but in terms of actually then taking those taking those three A levels and 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 doing so do three E sorry <laughs> A levels and then doing something with it, I was like, you know, what? I don't want to because um, I sailed through my GCSEs without any real effort or energy. Um, no revision. I was late for an exam because I was playing football and it was nine all. I wanted to see who was going to win. Um, you know, so it, it didn't take me any. There was very little cognitive effort in it. But when it came then to doing my animals, I thought I could just do the same, and I couldn't. You know, I thought I could just rock up and, and answer some questions, and I'd be all right. And I didn't. Um, and I remember the the blaseness of of um, when I kind of opened my results and went, "Oh look, I got three E's. I'm off to the pub with my friends. See you later." And just kind of walked out the house. Um, because I and then I created this story about why I didn't want to go to university and it wasn't the right place for me and that sort of stuff. Um, and, and I still maintain that was, and, and I would say this because it's my life and it's turned out all right. But I still maintain not going to uni was the best thing I ever did. Um, because if I had done, I'd have just ended up getting stupidly in debt, drinking far too much alcohol, um, and coming out with nothing to show for it at the end of it. Because um, I was far too interested in. Um, in in drinking alcohol and meeting girls and playing with my friends and having fun than I was in um, in doing anything vaguely resembling study. But there, there's definitely some stories that I've told myself over time since then as to my reasons for for doing or not doing yeah. it. Yeah, and and those stories that we tell ourselves they they start forming the truth, don't they? So absolutely, you, you kind of you you lose lose the actual truth because we rarely sit down and go oh actually what did I do during that time and, and what I did was you know when I look back and I look at what I did I I joined the civil service um I went to work at the serious fraud office I spent a year in a press office at the serious fraud office um just to put a little bit of context around this um we had a shared email account which I used to dial up every morning every lunchtime and every oh, evening wow. because we didn't have that you know so for anyone who um didn't start work until the 2000s the 90s were fun um yeah uh, <laughs> we used to fax things i um i made some friends and did some things at 19 that formed who i am later in my life and formed what i did i stayed in the civil service i moved into the health service i did a lot of work around patient advocacy and patient complaints okay. i then worked for a community health council um, which at the time was around helping patients to access services and helping them to formulate their opinions on services. I did a public consultation on um, uh, the University College London Hospital. I was part of the public consultation on the new UCL in London. I also did a uh, public consultation on access to um, uh, abortion services in North London and worked with the local uh, health authority to avoid sending 16 year old girls out to mile end on the tube to have an abortion when actually they could get one in in london subject to mm. so was, you know at the time we had 36 different languages being spoken in camden um we had masses issues with um uh drugs which they still have and i look back and i kind of go oh actually do you know what i did all right in those first six years of my working life and i did some really good work but at the time I was looking at my friends who are at university, other people around me, and what I hadn't done and what I hadn't achieved and why I hadn't. Mm. And it's not until you kind of take that time to go back and appreciate that you can look. And, uh, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing and all that stuff. But I don't think we as humans spend enough time going, 
do you know what? I did all right. And I did this stuff and I did that mm. stuff. And I think that's that self-doubt thing as well because I can't have done all right because if I'd done all right, then I wouldn't be feeling like this now, would I? Yeah. And, and I, I, I want to come back to that last point in a second. Um, but what I find really interesting about all of those things that you just sort of explained about the different roles that you've had, there was a real theme right in that, right? Giving, finding, finding a voice for people, whether that be patient advocacy, patient consultation, sixteen-year-old girls you know, needing an abortion. You know, you, you were everything you were doing was about finding a voice for people, and yet almost in a way you weren't, you know, your own voice. You weren't finding your own voice. I don't know if that's a fair thing to say, but I've said it now. So, I think it's. I think it's interesting. I think I. Um... I think it's one of the reasons I loved working in HR and I, I when I found HR it was the right thing for me um, yeah. because actually I used to joke that um, HR was 90% talking to people and 10% being a complete bitch and if someone at school in a careers offer had said to me we've got this perfect job for you Amanda I'd be like yay perfect um, because yeah, yeah. I I would actually now what I would say is that actually my role is about helping and it's, it sounds a little glib but it's actually about helping people and organisations get the best. It's about really working with individuals and making sure that they are have the tools and the resources and the, the situation to do the best that they can do, which then means that for a business, you are successful as a business. So it's still about advocating for people. It's still about helping people to have their voice. It's still about giving people access to services and the best that they can do it's just it's more about them as individuals than it is about access to health service i suppose so i'm still yeah. on that advocacy uh, bent to a certain extent mm -hmm. okay um so so when that um when that voice inside your head says you know, I'm I'm not as successful as. Oh, you got a friend. I have. Sorry, um, there's a delivery. Sorry, don't worry, it's fine. Let me just put said friend down so he can go and chase and see what's downstairs. No, that's all right. Oh, apologies, he's gone. No, don't worry. <laughs> it's fine. Um, so, um, I can't remember what I was saying. Though. Uh, Where was I going? Uh, when oh, I got so distracted by the dog barking. Um, we were talking about. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so we came, we came out of advocacy, and then I was going to say, so I said, so in in respect of um, the stories, well, let's go, we'll go here then. So in respect to those stories that we tell ourselves then, so when when you tell yourself that you're you're not, or when that voice inside your head tells you that you're not, that you're not good enough, that, that it's, you, know, you can't do this, or that you haven't got what you need, or you're not the right person, how, how does that feel which I know is a really broad question but I'm going to run with it if that's okay yeah sure um, okay so um, I'm not sure that I recognise that I'm doing it at the time that I do it okay so I'm not sure that it that I, I, I'm not sure it's until afterwards when I go oh I've been uh, procrastinating quite a lot around this oh yeah because actually I'm not good enough to do it so yeah. I, I think it's, I, I think that it's a, um, so it's, let me change this. So the feeling and the reaction mm. that I'm not good enough actually isn't based on fact. Okay. And actually when you look at self-doubt and imposter syndrome and that kind of belief that it's not enough, it's usually 
contrary to any objective evidence that actually showed that you're actually quite talented and you actually mm. are okay um and so i uh my 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 i think i don't feel because i think what i do is i find ways to avoid so i am a procrastination okay. master um i i joke with my brother that actually i just need a bit of pressure to get my best work done mm-hmm I, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I just think it's about the fact that I, the self-doubt in me goes, oh, that's going to be quite hard and I'm not sure that I'm good enough to do that. So, oh, look, there's a nice bit of a list that needs writing over here or there's yeah. a kitchen that needs tidying or there's some a cake that needs baking or a box set that needs watching or actually if I can just play around with this piece of work over here, then I can avoid that bit over there that actually I... I'm doubting whether I'm good enough or have the skill to do. So it's it's a it's about confidence and it's 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 I don't know, it's doubt a feeling. So yeah, it's I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, so it's doubt. Couldn't yeah. It it's about um a lack of confidence in myself and that self doubt and, and that kind of fear of being found out that I I'm not good enough at it and I I, I am a and, and that actually I'm going to fail because I'm not good enough. But, you know, then also I think procrastination is a bit of a coping mechanism because if yeah. you procrastinate and then you fail, you can say, oh, well, I failed because of lack of effort. Yeah. And then it's something else's fault. It's because of the procrastination, not necessarily because, or, you know, you, you can turn it around that you can say, oh, I was lazy or those sorts of things. Mm. So I think that it's a doubt. Which then fulfills your story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You can f- completely, you can fulfill your narrative. So I think mm. that there is that. I, I, it's interesting because obviously we, we agreed to do this a kind of a, a, a 10 days ago and I've been thinking a little bit about this since then. And yeah, I've been yeah. reading and looking at a couple of things since then and, and looking at my behaviour. And it's interesting that I, um, I, that, that inner voice stuff that I don't always know if I believe in. So I read a lot of self-help books and I I listen to self-help podcasts and stuff. And a lot of times I find myself going, yeah, 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 whatever, affirmations, blah, blah, blah. Um, Mm. But actually my inner critic and my inner voice, she's quite loud and and she's not always that nice. Um, And she doesn't pull any punches with some of the things that she says. And so that, that has been quite an opening to me an eye-opener for me, sorry. And mm-hmm. it's having this conversation and thinking about it has kind of made me go, why am I saying that about myself? So one, one of the things that I do a lot is I say that I'm lazy. Okay. Um, and actually, you go back and look at what you can achieve and what you have achieved and what you can do. And that wasn't the activity of a lazy person. That was actually someone getting stuff done. So what mm-hmm. is it that I... What do I hide behind and why do I call myself lazy? And it's 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 not... Um, I think as individuals, we're not always very nice to ourselves. And if I could find a way of not silencing that critic, but challenging her immediately and, and, and kind of taking it back a bit, I think I'll probably cope and get, get more stuff done and perhaps procrastinate a little less. Mm. Yeah, I... Really, so I was doing some work last week with a with a group, 
um, one of the one of the things that we've been so we're playing with like this notion of leadership, you because know, it's, it's like this nebulous thing that can, nobody can ever really pin down or define. Where you've got thousands and hundreds of thousands of different definitions of what it is, um, and the 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 group are kind of sort of it's, it's like a, a future leaders type program, sort of like a high potentially type thing. Um, and I've been doing some work with them for a while on, on their identity. You know, what's the, what is their identity as a as an individual, as a person, but also as a as a leader. So one of the things that um, I asked them to do last week was to dance with their inner critic, or what I call dance with their inner critic. So I put them into some thinking pairs um, with, and I asked them to choose people that they trust and that they're comfortable with. And you know, if anybody you know, felt like they, they wanted someone else to talk with them, that you know, it was okay to say, I don't want to talk with you, I want to talk to someone else. Um, but my question that I sent them off into their thinking pairs with was, I can never be the leader I want to be because. Ooh. Um, and, and I deliberately kind of framed it as, I want you to, to allow your, you know, I want you to give your inner critic a voice. I want you to give it a, a chance to advocate. I want, I want you to give it the floor, you know, give it some, some time and space for, for advocacy. And, and then I want you to then reflect on, so the kind of the process was answer the question and you think in pairs. So one person thinks first and the other person does it, write down whatever notes you want to write down. And, and then I asked them to reflect on what you know, their, their previous kind of achievements or things that they've done or, or tasks that they've completed and to, to kind of do a check and balance against what the what that inner critic says. Um, and what a lot of people reported in the session was it took me to a really horrible dark place when I did it, but actually that check and balances aspect afterwards really made me think about how valid a lot of those things that, that that voice advocated really are because when I you know to use your example of, of lazy when I then look back at it actually the actually the things that I complete or the things that I've achieved aren't achieved by a lazy person they're achieved by somebody working hard so it was a really interesting thing to um to explore uh, with them I think that's yeah and I think that we as individuals don't well I don't I, th I don't think life you know gives you time for that because you move from one thing to the next thing but i think if is as hr practitioners and, and as people who develop individuals and work on leadership i actually think developing those skills and developing that listening to your inner critic but also then addressing it and looking at it i think i think that's something that um to develop leaders is something really important and i think it's it's beyond it's about allowing that space for I don't know and allowing that space for um, actually how will I get there and, and because I think culturally when we look at leaders and when, when you ask people about leaders um, if they were honest they'd say they expect leaders to know the answers oh, to I've everything to know it quickly <laughs> and to know what's right actually yeah. I quite like the leaders who are prepared to go I don't know I've surrounded myself with people who do know or who I, or I know where to find out I quite like that space for I don't know and that mm. recognition that actually it's important to continue learning and, and those sort of things. But I think it's it's a challenge when you're developing through your career because culturally we're expected to know. We're expected to know what's best. We're expected to be successful. We're suspected to move things forward. And actually allowing that space for I don't know and discovering, I think, is um, within business is something that we don't always do. 
Well, I, I agree, but and I, and I think kind of linked and and in addition to that is the you know, what I want to say. So I suppose it's, it's it's broadly. So I could be really kind of glib, like you said earlier on, to say you know no yeah, emotion isn't allowed in the workplace unless you're happy. If you're happy, that's all right. Anything else isn't isn't allowed. And you know, again, I think as a as a sweeping generalisation, that's probably a step too far. But as a as a you know as a broad generalization i think it's probably fair but within that then comes the 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 fear i think that the intrinsic fear within individuals to say if i say i don't know my you know how's that going to how am i going to be judged how is that going to affect people's views and, and, and perspectives of me um but also then you've got well if we've got a, if we're filled if we're full of a business of people that don't know are we ever going to get anywhere yeah um so i think that there are some i agree with you there's some kind of cultural narratives that allow it to happen and one of the big outputs for me for the session last week one of the, the things that really resonated with me was somebody said i thought it was only me that had a really loud voice I yeah. thought the, the voice that I hear was, that was really loud. I thought it was only in me. I didn't realise that all these people have it, but actually everybody in this room has it, and that has been a revelation for me. And I was like, okay, well, that's, yeah, that that was that was really great because that you know, if that changes that perception or that narrative that um, it's only me that thinks I'm not good enough, or it's only me that challenges myself, or that you know really is, is harsh on or challenges myself, then. Um, then that's a, a sort of a tick for, for something that's been achieved. But that's one of the things about uh, imposter syndrome, isn't it? You know, everybody else knows what they're doing and I don't. And I'm going to get found out because I don't know what I'm doing, but everybody else does. Whereas mm. actually, um, there are very few people live without self-doubt. Um, I was listening to a podcast uh, last week where, and, and I'm going to be a bit vague because I can't remember it, but I'll tell you the podcast afterwards, right. where they quoted some research that showed that um, the, the, the least likely people to have imposter syndrome are senior professors in academia, senior people, men in health, uh, in health profession and bankers. And, and I, okay. think, I think that's quite interesting in terms of what we think about who those people are and what they do now actually i want a surgeon who doesn't experience self-doubt yeah absolutely. i i i, I want to know do I, I think i i want someone who can be humble and who can be open to conversation but when they've got their knife in their hand and they're about to cut in i want them to be as sure as they can of their self and i don't want them to think they i don't want them to be there with a fear of being found out Okay. There must be other professions that we want people to not have that fear of being found out. Driving instructor. Do we want people teaching people to drive who have a fear that actually they're rubbish drivers yeah. themselves? Pilots. Yeah. yeah, that would, yeah that, that's a really good example. I want a pilot who is incompetent that no matter what the weather throws at them, actually they've been trained to be in that situation. But is this about giving people the skills and training to cope with that? Or is it about an individual having that self-assurance and lack of self-doubt. Yeah, I get it. So um, there's a couple of things in that. So I think the hum the humility is, is a big one. So um, you know, what I wouldn't want is a surgeon that is so arrogant that nobody will, will tell them if they're, if they're doing the wrong thing or if they're concerned about something, you know, so that, that humility is a big part of it. And, you know, again, since you, you mentioned earlier that you've been doing some thinking, some investigation, researchy type stuff, and I've been doing the same thing. Um, in terms of those that 
uh, I find an article that talks about how those that are have self have self doubt yet um, are kind of humble with it. Um, sorry, those who have less self doubt but are humble with it are, are more valued and, and appreciated as um, as individuals than those that that have no self doubt but are arrogant and go with it. And I think you know, that that kind of there's an element of common sense that, that sits within that. Um, do I want a surgeon who's got self doubt? I'm really, I'm really hung up on that. Well, that's because of my operation last year or not. I don't know. Of but that's really, that's really got me thinking about. Do I want a surgeon that's got that's got self doubt? Or is it about the timing of that self doubt? So, um, one of the things about imposter syndrome is 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 the way you behave up to that point that you're in the room. Yeah. So actually a little bit of self-doubt up to the point that you're in the room and let's let's talk about people who have to facilitate meetings. Yeah. You know, there's often times when I've had to facilitate a group of leaders and I thought these people are all vastly more qualified than I am. I was on a um I was on an executive team with a group of medical research professionals. Bulk of them were medical research professionals. In that room, we had two knights of the realm. We had a man who had won a Nobel Prize. We had a dame, um, and, and and you know the great and the good from uh, mm. London Academia in a room, and me, with no degree, <laughs> um, uh, a newly divorced, uh, living but off credit cards woman who uh was in the room i could tell them about maternity law but as soon as that you know once they started getting into things but could i get these people to make a decision and actually when i got in the room and i had to facilitate things i realized that i was the right person for what they needed in that room at that time the Mm. doubt leading up to that wasn't necessarily a bad thing because it made sure that i was prepared it made sure that i had a real understanding of what we wanted to achieve it made sure that I researched when I got into the room and because I knew that I had these concerns actually I used that self-doubt and that imposter syndrome to make sure that I was ready so that when I went into that room and Mm -hmm. I had no room for self-doubt anymore because I had to facilitate whatever conversation we were having I was able to do that in a way that worked for them and worked for me so I think that you, you you want a surgeon who double checks. You want a surgeon yeah. who does their research. You want a surgeon who continues to learn, doesn't think they know everything. Um, but actually, when they're in that operating theatre with that scalpel, I don't think that's the time you want any self-doubt. I'm, I now want to get a surgeon on the podcast. <laughs> Sorry, I want to get you really think. All right, I want to get a surgeon on the podcast and talk to them about it. Um, so, I, I think as a like as an individual, as a patient, I agree with you. I think that was a really good, um, uh, a really good summary of of the yeah of what I would like. Um, and, and then, because again, it was really interesting. The the hospital where I had my surgery. When when, people, when I was going in for the scans beforehand, and uh, even on the day of surgery and, and one day after, I think it was the day after, I was asked who my surgeon was, and when I said who it was, I was like, oh, he's a really good one. He's really good. <laughs> and I was like, so there's multiple surgeons on the team, and we know there is because you've asked who's my surgeon. And, and the response I get is, is that. And I thought, that's really interesting. So what, what does that tell me about 
um, about the other surgeons that are on that. Well, exactly. Um, what would you have done if they'd gone? Team? Oh well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm sorry to I'm sorry to hear you've got this person. And you you really should have got this one, um, or or is it a stock answer? Because that's the other thing. You know, we've got to put it in context in the in the, you know, in 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 the hospital. Are there would the, would a nurse or a physio or a porter or whoever else would they say anything other than oh they're a really really good one, um, because actually to you know. Is it, is it a part of a ritualized conversation that they have so irrespective of the name that i i should have done an experiment and given a different name shouldn't i um irrespective of the name that i said would that have been the stock response was is another possibility but this that's quite interesting isn't it so there's been um it was i think it was the news this year there was a surgeon who was prosecuted for branding organs with his initials really did you read about this so he no i think it was kidneys i think it was kidneys and he laser branded these kidneys with his initials i will find you the article and i'll, I'll send it to you yeah so please you do so add I'll it, it to the show notes, notes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah um and there there was a lady that he treated afterwards who came out and said i don't care he's the best surgeon who probably saved my life and if he wants to put his initials on stuff because he's done this i don't care because he's saving lives and that really conflicted me because mm. i'm like how dare he how dare he be so arrogant as to put his initials on someone's organ but then there's this woman who's going i'm alive because of him i don't care that he puts initials on me mm. that's a real i don't know you know i i, I genuinely don't know how to feel about that because should this man who can save lives no longer be allowed to practice because his arrogance allowed him to put his initials on people's organs? I don't know. Do you save the fat man? <laughs> it's... Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, then, I, I, because I want, I want to segue back into something you said earlier on. So what, what I'll do is instead is I'll say, listeners let us know your thoughts so you can you know on, on twitter or on the podcast um, comments or whatever um be interested to know your thoughts on you know should that surgeon not be allowed to practice anymore because um they brand or they have um been found to be branding organs with their initials for the work they've done sorry that took a bit of a weird turn no no it's fine it's all right no it's really interesting um so before that, we were talking about how, uh, when you were giving your example about the facilitating the meeting with the Knight of the Realm and the Dame and the Nobel Prize winner and so on, um, you talked about how the imposter syndrome actually helped you. So, because it helped you be prepared and thoroughly prepare and, and that sort of stuff. So what else or, or how, uh, yeah, I'll just go there. How, how do you work with your imposter syndrome now then what do you do to sort of help you and sustain you through that or with that so it's really interesting i think that um so i've been working for 26 years now um and uh i in the last probably the last five to seven years i think i've really started to um recognize my own expertise and kind of go um actually I, this is what I'm good at and this is what I can do. Now, I still don't think I'm the best at those things and I still want to develop and learn and I still read, but I, I'm, I'm starting to kind of go, actually, I, I have an expertise in these areas. So I think that's part of it. And part of that is okay. actually looking at what I've done, 
recognizing what I've done and actually going recognizing that it's okay to go I'm good at this stuff so I am good at being in a room with loads of people who want to talk around a subject and actually getting them to get to the subject and and move that forward Um, what I'm not good is pampering people's egos and 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 stroking egos and working around that and and then there and as a result there are certain situations I'm not the best person for but you kind of get to I think the other thing that I do is um I go into research mode uh so if I am going to be working on something or I'm going to be looking at something I I have a habit of going into research mode what I'm not so I'll get books I'll look at podcasts I'll do a google research reviews I'll look at articles and those sorts of things so I I use that doubt um by going well actually I need to be better informed um, because I think the information is again sounds a bit glib. Information is power, and actually, mm-hmm. even if it, even if by reading all this stuff you come away going, I know less than I thought I did, or even actually now I've got more questions than I had. Mm-hmm. Actually, getting that information around. So a good example is I was doing some work on um, diversity and inclusion at work, and we were particularly looking at. Uh, gender pay reporting reporting the gender pay gap and what organizations could do to address issues where they had issues around the gender pay gap and whilst i had a personal interest and i um i have a bit of a campaigning mind when it comes to that sort of thing i wanted to go and find some practical examples of what organizations could do to start addressing the gender pay gap and i did that by doing a lot of research and i came across some fantastic books and some fast fantastic articles out there um talk to people find out things that people are doing so it, it um i took what i felt in my guts might be the right thing to do and then back that up with some evidence i'm terrible at quoting the evidence i have to go oh such and such read a book i'll send you the link because i never remember anyone's name yeah. but actually i i yeah. i personally back up my assumptions by trying to go out there and get some facts so that's one of the things i look at um, okay. the other thing that i've done recently which i think is um i recommend to anyone and it's i, I got it from a lady called uh sas petherick sas is someone who i worked with in the corporate world many many years ago um and she took herself out of the corporate world and, and uh, retrained as a coach. And she did a, uh, a really heavy master's and actually did a lot of work around self-doubt in okay. this. And um, so, I'll, again, I'll, I'll, I'll share the um, in your show notes the her link. She's at com, and she also has a another podcast called Courage and Spice. But one of the oh, things okay. that she talks about in Courage and Spice is um, uh, actually understanding how vast you are and and kind of looking at the idea that you you you're beyond that one thing that imposter syndrome and that self-doubt you have and so she advocates this exercise where you spend about 15 minutes writing a hundred words or phrases that describe you so roles you play things you like think those special things that you do and it could be anything like that special skill you have of making a crying child stop crying in an airport or the way you knit wonky scarves and hats or the way you can really drill into the detail of a particular um, issue at work and those sort of things. And, it, and it's kind of getting that whole roundness. So you really have an understanding of just how vast you are. And that whilst, mm. yes, you have imposter syndrome and, and some self-doubt around this one thing, you're so much wider than this one thing. And that's been really helpful for me because I 
um, for many years, I, I, I felt that without my work and without that success at work, I wasn't entirely sure who I was and I wasn't entirely sure about how I could be successful and happy. And it, and it, it felt very much about I had to be successful at work and I had to be doing this to be successful and happy. And actually, in the last couple of years, I've realised that having a proper kitchen disco and a laugh with my other half, Anthony, mm. brings me so much more joy than completing a piece of work. I want to do both really well. I want to enjoy both really well and I want to be successful at both. But actually, one isn't worth less than the other. I and mean, I used to put work and my success at work above everything else and that was how I defined myself. Yeah. And I just don't do that anymore. And that, that's been a real, a real shift in how I cope with not feeling good enough in a lot of areas. That my house is never clean enough. My weight <laughs> is never the right number. My dogs are never tidy enough. Um, there is never enough food in my cupboard. Or there's food, but it's always the wrong kind of food. Um, my to-do list is very rarely completely done. There's always going to be other stuff to do. But actually, I am so much more than my to-do list. I'm so much more than that one piece of work I'm doing right now. And knowing that, I think, has really helped me cope with this imposter syndrome. But as you know from conversations we'd had in the last week, it hasn't gone. Mm -hmm. I, I still go, well, why would Phil want to talk to me? I don't know anything. <laughs> but actually, that discovering how vast I am, and I'm not that vast, you know, I, I don't have any particular skill that a lot of people have. I don't play any instruments. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I haven't climbed any mountains. But even little old me, I'm doing all right. Yeah. And you make me smile as you said that because um, as soon as you said it, I was like, "Oh look, that's a bit of the imposter syndrome talking." I'm, you know, I've not done any mountains. I've not, I've not done any of these things. Um, yeah. Yes, because that's what success is, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> success is climbing mountains or raising money or whatever. Um, so one of, one of the things that I'm, I'm I was wanted to ask was because if if, so if if somebody googled Amanda Arsmith they might find things like, uh, especially if they were searching on social media, they might find things like um, a, an Ignite talk that you gave at, uh, at um, a conference called NAP, or the COPD's Northern Era Partnership, um, in 2017, where you essentially do some singing poetry. And they might look at that and go, how on earth does that person... You know, there's, they, they might not kind of compute the two things together in terms of you saying this is something that I've really struggled with over time. I've worked really hard to get better at. And, and they kind of see that as a as an action. They might not equate the two together. So I was wondering, like, for something like that, like that Ignite Talk as an example, how do you prepare for that? What's the, you know, what's the kind of, I, I get there's the over-research bit maybe, but how do, how do you kind of work with the imposter syndrome stuff to then come out with something as amazing, and I will, you know, as amazing as that Ignite Talk was? So I've been a couple of things. One is I have been practicing accepting compliments, <laughs> which I know sounds ridiculous. I, you know, you no. practice the violin, you practice <laughs> tennis. I've been practicing accepting compliments. So thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I don't mean that. I'm like, oh my god, people You're actually welcome. see that, was, and that's it, available on the internet. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, I'm going to be completely honest. 
and I apologise, Gemma and Kez, in advance. Um, I was asked last minute to do the Ignite talk. Someone had pulled out. Oh, I tell you what it was. Um, do you remember we had the snap election called that year, and Joe Swinson yeah. was meant to be doing the keynote speech, and unfortunately, Joe was standing as a member of Parliament. And Nap was on the day and the day after the election. So Joe could no longer do the keynote speech. So five weeks before Nap, all of a sudden, they had no keynote speaker anymore. So the committee at Nap rushed around, found some people who would do um, some Ignites. And myself, Gary Cookson and David uh, were, were said, yeah, sure, we'll do it. And so for four weeks, I did nothing. I went, oh, I'm doing that talk at Nap. I wonder what I'm going to do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm doing that talk at nap. Oh, it's only five minutes. It'll be fine. What am I going to do? Oh, yeah. And for four weeks, I did nothing. And then I had this idea at night, one night, where I thought, oh, I wonder if I could do like a little bit of a song and a slide with each song. And then uh, Jem and Kez asked me for my slides. And I went, yeah, yeah, they're coming. Yeah, yeah, they're coming. Yeah, yeah, they're coming. Um, I finally finished my presentation on the train on the way up that morning. I ran it through for the first time um, at the race course that afternoon with um, our good friend Julie, um, who, uh, blessed her, said to me, have you run through this before? And I went, oh, yeah, yeah, once or twice. I lied to to one of my best friends. Um, And she said, yeah, you might just want to slow down a bit and and check the lyrics on some things. Um, I think Julie knows very well that I was lying. Uh, She knows me very well. Um, I ran it through three times before I got up on that stage and did it. Now, I'd had the idea some time before, and I'd thought about it in my head some time before, but I'd procrastinated so much that I didn't actually put it down onto paper until I had no choice other than to put it down on paper. And then I took a deep breath, and I jumped in, and I got away with it. Um, But I loved it. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I realised that I enjoy standing up and singing in front of people. It's something that I've done from a very young age. There's a, um, a, a newspaper article that my mother has from the Newbury Weekly News when okay. I was 12 that says that I was a miniature hybrid Liza Streisand. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> I, was a, wow. I, I was a diva, it's fair to say. Um, but I was a diva who wasn't good enough because her brother got the leading part. And I didn't get a part in The Sound of Music, but my brother and my best friend did. And my brother was Oliver. And so even though I love doing these things, actually, I, I was never good enough. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, how did I get up and do it? Uh, I didn't give my child a choice other than, but also okay. I went to something that I know I'm comfortable at and I know I'm good at. And I know that I can stand up and sing in front of people. Because actually... It's something I've always done. Mm. And so I found something that worked for me. And so that, that procrastination that led up to that, yeah. to it, was that back to something you talked about earlier on, which is if if I don't do it, then I don't have to... Oh, then if I don't do it, then the voice won't tell me that I'm not good enough and I can't do that and what a stupid bonkers idea. Completely. So if I leave it if I leave it to the last minute, I've got, you know, I've made a promise to these people and all these people are going to be waiting. So my only option is to kind of deliver. Exactly. Irrespective of what that voice says. Yeah. And if you ignore something long enough, then, you know, you put it in that box over there 
you can ignore it and you don't have to worry about it, do you? I think it's mm. it, it's it's really interesting because I think that um, you can equate this back to lots of different things in work and in life. So in work, you don't get that report written until you have to, and you end up staying up till five o'clock in the morning, or you end up working till nine o'clock nine o'clock at night and then getting up again at four o'clock in the morning, which I have done. And I've done with writing, I've done with bid work, I've done, uh, I've done in the last few years when I have tried to write something, tried to write something, tried to write something and just looked at a blank screen. And it hasn't been until those last 24 hours that my brain and my body has gone, it's too late, you have to do this. And so that fear comes in and you, you get it written. But then I think mm. that there's also an element in life, you know, I have... Um, I, I, I wrote a blog this week about um, the menopause because, you know, that's fun. And uh, um, But one of the things I mentioned in there is I've lived in this house now for seven months and I still don't have a GP. I know I need a GP. Okay. I know I need to get it done. I, but it's one of those things that I just I hate going to the doctor. Can't be bothered going to the doctor. It's not something we do as Arismiths, you, you know, when I... Um, I fell over at school when I was very young and they phoned my mother and said, um, well, there was two things. So the first one was they phoned her and said, oh, Amanda's, Amanda's sick. And she said, has she been sick? And they said, no. And she said, well, call me when she's been sick. And then the second one was um, Ama- uh, Linda, uh, Amanda's broken her arm. And, they, and she said, are you sure? And they said, yes, yes, we're really sure she's broken her arm. And she's like, oh, okay. So, you know, as a family, it's the way that we work. And so it's it's almost that you put things off until they become something you have to do. And, And often to your own detriment. And I think that people do it all the time. I think you look at people who have, um, skin cancer is a really good example they've got a mole they know it's itchy they know it's uncomfortable they know it's probably changed shape a bit but they do nothing about it for several months actually it's something that can be fixed really quickly but it's one of those things that has and i don't know what it is about us as humans that we ignore those difficult things but we we do we ignore them and we ignore them sometimes to our own detriment so far, I've been lucky. So far, I procrastinate and then I get stuff done and it gets out there and, it, and, and it's been okay or it's been good even. But I know it's one of my... It's something I need to deal with and do less of. Cool. So I, I think... Um, so thank you. <laughs> um, and I think one of the things that we, uh, as humans, we're good at is catastrophizing. Oh, yeah. And 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 then we don't like catastrophe, so then we put it in a box and and try not to, you know, not to think about it and, and, and address it. And you know, I mentioned that I think in the podcast, the one that I did that kicked off the year that, you know, I didn't want to look at myself in a mirror because if I did, I had to admit that there was something wrong. And if I admit there was something wrong, then that got really scary, and I didn't want to do that. So actually, I just not I'll, I'll cut up a paper over glass, and I'll not you know I'll not look at myself walking down the street. Um, in you know, I won't look at my reflection in the in the window type thing. Um, so I think it, it yeah, because if you then think about when I, I remember a similar thing when I did my ignite uh, um, at the L and D show in May last year, and when I did that in a in a poetry way, that yeah, that was that was scary. Um, and like you, lots of practice, but it was lots of practice in the in the last few. Yeah, the last week, few days leading up to it, as opposed to, um, you know, as opposed to practicing it for weeks and 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 weeks. And weeks, and weeks. I, mm. I, okay. I think, I think, Sorry. just as a, a slight tangent, I personally think that ignites benefit from that, 
So I I find those ignites that are over practiced and that you know they've done before, or you know that they're just just selling what they're always selling. I yeah. I haven't enjoyed those as much as the ones where it's for that event or, or for that thing. So the um, the ones that you and I did at that L and D show, um, mm. I, I loved your ignite. I loved the way that you built in the pauses and, and built in that time and, and, and the way that you had written it for that event. I, I thought it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Um, there were others on that bill that you could tell it was something they'd done before and they brought out and they just brought out every time they were asked to do something. And I think that one of the power of the Ignite series is actually they are always about in that moment and, and because of the pressure of the slides moving on and the way that it works. So the Disrupts HR um series which i think there's been six of them now in the uk in mm. uh, london i know they've got some in, in glasgow um i quite like the fact that they they tend to have different speakers all the time and a lot of time it's people's first time doing those yeah. ignites and and the the energy that you get from that nervousness is fantastic it's the same sort of thing you get from improv if you go and look at improv and the way that people work around improv it's fantastic and you get the opportunity to see how people work and what they do I think it's really interesting and really um, I think it's a real skill that people can get and I think that um, there's there's some stuff around improv that's quite uh, interesting to use in work and I think some of the yeah. skills that people get from theatre and improv could be really interesting in the workplace as well sorry slight tangent <laughs> no no it's alright so I, I think again it for me it links back into because if what, what, what often so my inner critic often sort of tells me to, the the voice that I that the voice that I have within me, you know, says you know, says things like you can't do that, you're not good enough to do that, you're not prepared enough to do that. So actually, something like improv, where you have you don't have that opportunity to prepare, then gives you a you know, and and again, this works for some people, doesn't work for others in terms of the translation across the workplace. But to be able to say, you know, what I can create something off the top of my head that makes sense it might not be perfect it might not be you know 100 percent on point but i can create something off the top of my head that, that works and makes sense because then if you have that if that that, that build up of evidence of, of experiences where you do that then it just makes you more and more confident to do other things in the future you know one of my habits and one of the things i'm known for is if i ring somebody and they put me send me to their voicemail the message I'll leave will be in song. Yes. You know, so it will be a, um, it will be a, you know, a, a version of a song, but with the well, with the message tailored to whatever the reason I was calling for. Um, and and so part of it is because I enjoy it. I and I enjoy the challenge. I enjoy the challenge of right. Can I make up a song on the spot for this person about why I rang? Because if I can, it gives me. The, the the confidence and the reassurance that actually if somebody checks something at me left field I've got the wherewithal within me to respond to that and respond you know quickly and in a way that makes sense um, and sometimes that you know the songs are good and sometimes they're less good but that, either way it's okay you know I can I can kind of work with it and, and make sense of it okay so i'm conscious of, of time I know. and i want to and i want to start to sort of put it together so we talked about sort of strategies that help you one one being the how vast i am 
um, another one being you know, using it to, to prepare you. Are there any other strategies or any other things that really help you when, when working with your inner critic slash um, so imposter syndrome? I think the research thing is, is it comes from the make space for I don't know. So it's all right to go, actually, I don't know enough about this and, yeah. and to, to find out. Um, I think that I, I talk about recognising your expertise. It's OK to go, do you know what, that's the area that I'm good at and that's my area of expertise I think we need to celebrate success more I think sometimes in work um, we're so busy moving on to the next thing improving ourselves that we actually don't stop and celebrate the success and and kind of and and I think that as managers as leaders as individuals we're all guilty of that and we need to find some way of of just having that 24-hour rule where you're allowed to be really pleased with something that you've done and I think the other thing that um I would recommend to anyone who has experienced a bit of self-doubt is go back and look at what you've done. Go back and appreciate what you've done. I um, I recently went back and read uh, the first uh, bid that I did for something. Um, and I've done a couple of them over the years. And I went back and I read it and I, I came away and kind of went, oh, that was actually quite good. You wrote some good stuff mm-hmm. in there. Because I'd, I'd become a bit stuck and I'd become a bit um, unsure that I was good enough to write what I needed to write and I, I couldn't have the ideas and it wasn't flowing and so I went back and read things that I had written and read things that I'd said and, and, and the research that I'd done and I came away going I can do this and I reminded myself so I think um, uh, Gemma Dale went to a lecture at Manchester yeah, that's right. I think last week around imposter syndrome and one of the things yeah. that um uh, the lecturer suggested was you put a brag list together now I'm not going to put a brag list together because that's uh, that's that's far too American for me I, I'm, I'm far too <laughs> British and we shall never have a brag list but I think that it's important to look at your achievements beyond your CV and actually sometimes that's about going back and reading a particularly good piece of work you wrote going back and looking at a workshop that you developed that was really good looking at things that you've done um, no matter how far back and actually going, oh, I can do this, and that's good. And I think that that is 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 a real skill to come back to. It comes back to the how vast you are, but I think this yeah. is particularly around in your work life. If you so are in your work life. questioning your ability, go back and look at things that you've done, because you can do it, and you have done it. You just need to sometimes remind yourself. And I think that's really powerful, that reminding yourself you can do it. if you think about children and um, riding bikes and falling off bikes actually they can't do it they can't do it they can't do it until they do and then your brain kind of clicks doesn't it that I can ride a bike or I can do this and it's that confidence that comes with knowing so I think that as adults we lose that sometimes and I think we have to go back and get that confidence that comes with knowing and I think the only other thing I would say and it's it's um it, it it sounds a little bit glib but um, there, there's that very well-known saying that comparison is a thief of joy and it really mm. is and I am terrible at comparing myself to other people and going well why did they choose her to do that or why did they choose him to do that because surely I'm better and surely I've got this experience no look there they go Not and and actually it's not about them and I shouldn't be comparing myself to anyone else. I don't practice everything that I preach, by the way. I'm working on it. And I'm working <laughs> yeah, yeah. on myself towards that. But I think that we, we as, a, as a society, need to stop comparing ourselves to other people. And we need mm. to find, find out what my happy is and what my right is. 
there was a I went swimming last week um, and there was a there was a lady who was swimming in the lane next to me and I just had like this real strong thing about comparing my the quality of my swimming stroke with hers because <laughs> she just looked effortless as she swam through the water and I was like right I'm gonna I'm gonna look I'm gonna be effortless and and I just wasn't and I, and I, I in my head I was imagining myself as like this flailing <laughs> um you know swimmer who was splashing everybody and you know weaving across the lane or whatever and and I had to you know when I stopped for a rest after a few lengths I was like right come on stop that's that's not helping you in any way shape or form you know the only if you want to compare yourself just compare yourself with you and compare yourself with how you were last week or the week before that or the week before that you know and and look you know is that getting what were you achieving then and what you're achieving now versus compared to you know this lady for all you know she could swim you know every day of the week and she's been practicing for 20 years and you're then trying to go oh look at me i'm trying to compare myself so i had a yoga session uh with um uh, daisy um she's on instagram as farm girl yogi on uh, Thursday last week and I booked for a class and actually I was the only one that turned up for the class so I ended up having this fantastic one-to-one yoga session um, but we had a long conversation about downward dog and how you get into a particular position for downward dog and how your hips and your back need to be aligned and getting your feet down and that sort of thing and um, so Daisy is paid to be a yoga instructor you know this is what she does for her living yeah, and yeah. she said to me oh Amanda for three years I couldn't get my feet flat it took me three years to get this pose right. You are further along now, I can't get my feet flat, than I was after 18 months. So the important thing about that yoga session is whenever you go into practice, it's your practice and it's for you. And what you're doing is right for you. And what you mm. can do this week might be different to what you do yet next week, but we are each different. We each, are, you know, we each go at our own pace. And actually comparing yourself to someone else isn't going to make you better aspiration is good inspiration is good but comparison is actually just going to knock you back a bit mm. says the beautiful live 27 year old girl as she's <laughs> bending around in front of me as i'm struggling to get my hands over my toes but you know she meant well bless her <laughs> no, I know what you mean. but uh, yeah i yeah it's but I, I think it's it's another one of the things that that create the i'm not worthy you know and i, I don't belong here because you've got all these other people that have these things or do these things or achieve these things. So it, it, it is back to that comparison, you know, in terms of what, what, you know, because by making that comparison, you then, you know, you, you, you imply or presuppose or actually outwardly state that I am not as good as that person. And, you know, yeah, so it's a, I agree with you. It's, it's something that, that actually can debilitate an awful lot more than it can be of, of of any you know of any use to to individuals okay so there, there was one thing i also wanted to add to um you know what you said earlier on about going back and reviewing your work and reviewing your successes I, I i agree with all of that one of the things that i did um was when i made my list of the stuff that i said i wasn't good enough at i went back and did a like that check and balance thing that i talked about earlier on but i also got somebody who i really trust who I gave them my list as well and said, I want you to tell me what you think. I want you to do a check and balance for me. Um, you know, so for you to tell me whether you think any of these are, 
you know kind of what evidence do you have to support or um or challenge that these things exist um, and i found that a really useful thing to do i found that really helpful to get as well as having my own perspective to get someone else's perspective on it as well because they they you know they shared with me things that i hadn't really noticed or hadn't paid attention to but they're like you know what that there's this thing that you do or this thing that happens that actually makes a real difference to me or to the to your work or to the organization or whatever it, you know whatever it is um so I, I find that quite a useful um a useful thing to do granted it you know it, it was someone that i trusted implicitly because i wouldn't want to just give it away to anybody but but i think that's something yeah. that we can do isn't it we can do both in work but also in life is that mm. actually and it comes back to the celebrating success it's okay to tell people that you think they're really good at something it's okay it, it you know it's good to say i i really value your opinion on this i think that you did this really well and it's not patronizing and it's not condescending it's actually celebrating success and it's it's it comes back to um accepting compliments doesn't it like I said earlier, it's like I'm teaching myself to accept compliments, and I really am. Yeah, as because, opposed to dismissing them. Yeah, because yeah, normally my first reaction was, oh, oh, that old, th- you know, oh, that, oh, that was nothing. Oh, I, I just, I winged it. But actually, I'm, I'm really grateful that someone enjoyed it and that, that it went well. And, and it's, you know, it, it's allowing yourself to recognize someone else and recognize your value through someone else, which is a whole different podcast that you'll have to have that conversation with someone about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll add that one. I'll, I'll add that. That, was, that. That gives me a nice link. I don't know if you did that on purpose, but I'll take it. So, is there anybody, any guests that you would recommend, that, um, or any future suggestions for other stories we should explore? Um, I, I think that taking compliments thing and the emotion around other people's recognition is quite an interesting thing, particularly in a, in, okay. in a work environment, because um, uh, there's the there's the whole thing about um, letting people down and disappointing people but then there's the other side of actually accepting good prey accepting praise and accepting that you've done something so i think i think that's quite interesting that kind of that feeling um i think that the, there's always something around the language that we use so um okay. I, I i find it amusing when um people in work tell people that they're disappointed in them um, to which my general response is, well, that's nice. Uh, because actually this wasn't about whether you are disappointed in something that I've written, because guess what? I didn't write it for you. Um, mm. and, and, and so I think, I think that's always interesting, that, that the, the use of language and the power behind language and how that flips into work. Um, so I think that would be good. Future guests, oh, there's, there's some great people. I'd love to hear you talk to a surgeon about doubt. I think that would be amazing. If you yeah, could find okay. one to talk to about doubt, I think that'd be really interesting. I think that um, I think I think that's fascinating. I think um, the other thing that's always interesting is people that have changed careers and um, not necessarily downsized their careers, but people who have who've changed careers. So I'm always really interested with people who were kind of successful bankers and those sort of things who then go into public service. So there's a lady. Um, uh, I'll send you her name separately because I've forgotten it. She's a chief inspector yes, in the Scottish Police um, who used to be a banker in the city and she's now a chief superintendent in Police Scotland. Uh, Rose, someone will come back to me. Um, she's, I think she'd be fascinating to kind of that because they're completely different, aren't they? Completely different, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And those people who go from being bankers to being teachers, again, completely different. So I think, that, I think those sorts of people would be incredibly interesting.
Okay, all right, I shall do that then. Thank you. I'll add that to the I'll add that to the list of guests to to source. All right, so to bring us to a close then with my usual closing question, is there anything else then, the lovely Amanda Arrowsmith, that you are thinking, feeling or want to say on the topic of emotion at work in imposter syndrome? Um, I think that one thing we, we didn't touch on and it, it's quite a big thing, but I think that imposter syndrome is sometimes seen as a woman's problem and it's therefore used as a label for women. But it's really important that we as employers know that it's not it's not just about women. It's about that cultural pressure to perform yes. and not show weakness. And I think that sometimes um, that's harder for men. And I think that within HR, um, it's important for us to, to recognise that and to think about that. Um, I guess the only other thing I would say is, is that um, the, this isn't always about achieving and succeeding actually failure is okay and it's how you recover from that failure and how you get back that is important um, the you know failure itself is, is a learning experience which i know is easy to say but as someone mm. who has failed spectacularly several times actually you do learn from it um and it's it, it's how you find a way of not allowing that to eat at you and become the evidence for your imposter syndrome to the evidence that you're not enough and the evidence that you're a fraud and actually balancing that so as you were saying your list of what you're good at or what you think you're not good at you need to balance that so those would be the big things for me but also I think that um, you've talked about emotion at work and emotion isn't a bad thing I think we think mm. about emotion and we think about tears and we think about oh my god I can't cope with people crying that's not what we mean and actually it can be joy it can be fear it can be anger it can be authenticity it can be all these different things and i think mm -hmm. it's important that we allow those in the workplace and working in hr we have a unique position to allow that um and to enable that and we should use that position as best we can uh, yeah i agree i can't say <laughs> i can't say anything more than i agree <laughs> um yeah absolutely um so one of the things, just linked on a couple of things you said there. So one is I found some research around um, is imposter syndrome unique to women? And actually the, the data suggests no. Um, it's just that um, often it's targeted at women more because it seems like societally or culturally it's more acceptable for women to say that they struggle with it, whereas men it's not, which is supporting the point that you just said. And I'll put a link to that research in, uh, in the show notes as well. So thank you. Thank you so much thank for your time you. today. It's been a um, yeah, really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll bring it together to a close. So thank you very much, Amanda Ashworth. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast. Written, recorded and presented by Phil Wilcox. Edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at, at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.